Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we have a bunch of different bundles of holding that we're going to look at. There's some really good deals on some excellent books. I'm going to show you what they are and how you can get them. I'm going to talk a little bit more about uh, Level Up Advanced 5e's Trials and Treasure book and the encounters and how they're actually tied to the Monstrous Menagerie. This is something I missed when I was talking about the encounter tables and how to roll twice on encounter tables in my video last week, but I thought we'd spend a little time looking at that, uh, taking a look at that today. I'm going to do a comparison of different travel systems. There are now many different books, many different products that offer a wide range of different ways to handle travel. So we're going to take a look at these different ones, get an idea of how they operate, and figure out what sort of travel rules work well for you. And we're going to cover more questions from the December 2023 Patreon Q&A, all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm your friend, Mike Shea from Sly Flourish, your friend. I'm your pal, Mike Shea from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in tabletop role-playing games. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to a dedicated Discord server, the monthly Q&A, a preview of the City of Arches sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a bunch of exclusive adventures, a bunch of exclusive tools. It's a fantastic way to get a whole bunch of material to help you run your games. I hope you'll check it out. Most of all, patrons help me put on shows like this. To the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. Yeah, I don't know why the bundles are so big, but there's two really, really good bundles going on right now. The first one are two bundles for Numenera. Numenera is a science fantasy role-playing game made by Monty Cook Games. Monty Cook and Bruce Cordell and other developers that work for Monty Cook Games have been making RPGs for a long time, and they made a really cool, fun, optimistic science fantasy world called Numenera. It's been out... Has it been out 10 years now? It's been out a while, six, seven years at least. Really cool science fantasy adventure built on a system called the Cypher system. There are two different bundles of holding that you can get. One is known as the Discovery Bundle. It's a little bit pricey for a a bundle of holding, but it comes with a ton of stuff. Numenera Discovery, which is the main core book for Numenera, Priest of the Aeons, a bunch of supplements, maps, and play aids is your first collection for $20. If you increase your pledge to the the threshold, which is now currently $36.41, you also get Numenera Destiny, which is about building locations. It's got new sort of builds for your characters. It's got a whole bunch of material, but you're getting thousands and thousands of pages of really cool material to look at like science fantasy adventures, in particular, the world of Numenera. Building Tomorrow, the three ninth world bestiaries, three different bestiaries, Voices of the data sphere i used a lot of this material when i ran my year-long numenera campaign and i loved it i really enjoyed this stuff now one thing i've noticed is and and i've 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 heard this myself and i've heard this from my friends is they love the system or they love the world they don't necessarily love the system that the cypher system is doesn't really grab on anybody which is unfortunate because i love it as a gm but i recognize that players don't love it as much but you can still use this material with other game systems you can use it with 5e 5e it actually works pretty well there's that book arcana of the ancients that tells you how but you don't even really need that you can still run big science fantasy adventures using this so the numenera discovery bundle is one such bundle it actually includes two bundles within it there is another Numenera bundle, a new one called Numenera Horizons that has a whole bunch of their new material, including Forge of the Edge of the Sun, Liminal Shores, Into the Data Sphere, Into the Deep, Into the Night, one, Numenera One Shots, Beyond All Worlds, a whole bunch of stuff that you can get in this one. This is $26.95, $27 more. So together, you're talking about what, $36, about $60, a little bit more than $60. Bucks. You're going to get just 
literally thousands of pages of really, really cool science fantasy adventures coming out of Monty Cook. They have the best production value I have seen of pretty much any publisher. Their, their work just looks really, really good. The only thing I can knock them on is that there definitely are times where players aren't crazy about the actual game system that's used for it. But I think that that's solvable by picking other game systems and running with it. It is really outstanding. So please check out the two Numenera bundles. This is a great chance to dive in and just get a huge collection of really inspiring different material. Another bundle that's going on right now is the Kobold Press bundle, Kobold Guides bundle of holding. This is a $20 bundle where you get nine complete guides the complete guides are small guides series of essays from lots of different producers lots of different creators in this industry including yours truly i have a bunch of essays that are in these guides uh, i have it in monsters and i have it in i think in game design and in game design 2 so i have a few essays in this i don't know if i have pots and campaigns i don't know which ones i have world building i think i've got one so lots of different guides if you're looking to get like well-edited, well-thought-out blog articles from some of the smartest designers, you know, I'm removing myself from that group, some of the smartest designers in tabletop role-playing games to understand what these games are like. This is a fantastic way to go. GMs could certainly get value out of this, but you get a lot of really good value if you're looking into publishing your own work, you could do far worse than to read a lot of the different angles and aspects that different creators are bringing to this. And $20 for all of these nine books is an absolute steal. That's like what? A dollar, $2 a book, basically a little bit more, $2.10. That's a fantastic rate for these books. So check out the Kobold Guides. You can find a link in the show notes. Really outstanding books to learn more about how our hobby operates. So last week, I gave my big tip on how to increase, or at least geometrically, some people came back and said, it's not actually exponential, Mike, it's more like a geometric improvement. I'm like, okay, dramatically increase the amount of value you can get from random tables by uh, rolling twice on a random table and then combining the two results together to come up with something really interesting and unique. And one of the complaints I had about it was, well, I wasn't crazy about how in, I was using Level Up Advanced 5e's Trials and Treasure Book. This is sort of their Dungeon Master's Guide. This is from the Level Up Advanced 5e Trials and Treasure Book. And I complained about the things that it says something like ghast, right? If you look at like, if I say like Frozen Wasting Exploring Tier 2 and I roll a 23, I get ghast. And that's not telling me anything. And I was like, oh, that's kind of a bummer. I really like random encounter tables that have some context to it. I was corrected by none other than Russ Morrissey Morris from EN World. He didn't correct me exactly, but he brought something up. He said, well, you know, this is how it was intended to work, which is you don't necessarily, you, the intention here is not to build an encounter from that, but to see the monster and then go up to the monstrous menagerie. And that one, when you look up the ghast, has encounters that you can drop into your group. I was like, oh, that is a much more interesting way to do it. So we're going to show how that works, right? So we, we brought up ghast, right? The 24, 25 and your tier two. But we're also going to bring up the Menagerie. The Level Up Advanced 5e Monsters Menagerie is my favorite book of 5e monsters. It is a direct replacement for the 2014 Monster Manual, but has many more monsters and a lot more material. It's a fantastic book. It was my favorite book of 2022. My favorite RPG book of 2022. Definitely worth picking up. And this one with Trials and Treasure really gives you a lot. The neat thing about this is... If you use Trials and Treasure and you use the Monstrous Menagerie, 
you can basically replace the GM side of things in 5e without your players having to switch anything on their side. They can continue to run with D&D Beyond with their character builders or the player's handbook and Xanathar's and Tasha's, whatever books they want to use, whatever books you agreed to use on their side, whatever that your table has agreed to, they can use that. But you can completely replace the 2014 Monster Manual and Dungeon Master's Guide with the Monsters Menagerie and Trials and Treasure and nobody's the wiser except the level of your game goes up right and the level up ha that your game gets better because you're using this but in particular this was the, the trick i didn't know which is when you roll a ghoul what, what do we roll we said a ghast right so we have a ghast and we roll a 23 and we look up ghast and we'll go here to the, the menagerie and we go to ghouls and we go to ghast and what you'll see is that the ghast that there are encounters right here the ghouls and ghast encounters as part of the ghouls section and you can say okay well this is a tier two so you can say two ghasts with 1d4 ghouls or whatever mixed together and what treasure they have with them you have different ghoul behavior that you can roll on to say like what they're doing when they're there different signs that the characters can go on so the random encounter tables in trials and treasure is intended for you to then jump to the menagerie and use all of the tools that are available in the menagerie stuff that's really easy to miss like the legends and lore what could the characters learn about these creatures while they're there what kind of encounter could they run what's the treasure that they might acquire this one look at this plus one warhammer named whisper made with a silver rune and black stone once per day its wielder can cast the silent spells in action centered on the hammer you know really cool right you got a whole kind of encounter built into this thing signs what are the signs that they're going to they're they're going to see and again the behavior of course and of course the stat block of of what they have so let's do another example just for funsies let's let's roll some actual dice we'll do a tier three a tier three frozen wastes encounter this poor this poor person's having a bad day they're not even wearing a shirt what happened to their shirt they're in the frozen waste put on a put on a jacket go to ll bean pick up a jacket 29 frost giant right so you're like oh frost giant that's boring just plain old frost giant but then you can go here and you go to giants do we're giants bang frost giant bang and we have our frost giant encounters we decided it's a tier three so we could probably pick what any one of these would work frost giant jarl frost giant riding a mammoth frost giant with two griffins ogres polar bears we pick which one we think is cool what treasure they have but again, we can have like what their behavior is. So we could roll on that if we want to and say, well, what's the behavior of this group? We'll do the frost giant group. So what's the behavior? Three, performing a ritual to summon a storm. Now we've got some stuff. We've got a, a detailed encounter, right? We might say three frost giant, three frost giants. Oh, I like this one. Well, yeah, we'll do three frost giants. That, that could work, right? That's a big, powerful one. And they're summoning a storm. Now we've got an encounter and we have multiple ones. So it's even better than if Trials and Treasure included context because there are multiple contexts, multiple different kinds of encounters for each monster that you roll on those monster tables. So that's really neat. You know, what are the signs that the characters might witness before they run into them? They could see a giant broken drinking horn nearby. So there's some legends and lore that the characters might learn about giants. There isn't a legends and lore section for each version of giants. I presume that space made that impossible, but lots of other things that you can pick there. So these two books together, Trials and Treasure and The Monstrous Menagerie, really like I'm learning more. I've been using these books for a while and I'm learning more about them that I really, really think is cool. I would definitely, you could, you could do far worse than to pick up 
both the trials and treasure book and the monsters menagerie and learn how they're working together so really neat way to kind of combine the features of these two books and i really that was a that was a thing that i had heard about again morris had mentioned it on youtube as a comment i actually read the comments and taught me about this book in a way that i really loved so i i i wanted to share that because i thought that that was really neat one other thing I ran into, so PJ Coffee, who's one of the regular hosts of the EN World podcast and one of the developers of Level Up Advanced 5e, had a very good article about what Level Up at 5e, why you would want to pick up Level Up Advanced 5e. I thought it was excellent. This one is definitely steered towards GMs. What value does this provide for GMs in how it does things like better monster balance, better encounter building, lots of other things that it does. One of the, I would love to see a guide like this specifically for players. What advantages does Level Up Advanced 5e offer to players? That would be a really, really good guide because you have no trouble convincing me. I already want to use these books, but the next step for me is to get my players to sort of, hey, maybe we'll put the 2014 DM Player's Handbook aside and maybe we'll try the Level Up, Advan Level Up Advanced 5e Adventurer's Guide. I, I did the Christmas story style thing of just randomly leaving a couple of copies of the level up advanced 5e players guide on my table and my in my gaming in my in our gaming room where we play so that when players are hanging out they're just like oh what's this it's very big and they're flipping through and like oh look at that that's interesting that kind of thing to get them excited about it. and i talked to them about it what are some of the features but i would love a guide that told me exactly like what makes this what makes the adventurer's guide why would a player want to play with a level up advanced 5e character instead of a character from the 2014 player's handbook so but if you if you are not sold on level up advanced 5e i think this guide can can really help but really there is so many well-designed features of this system that i really really like and i and i recommend so take a look at this article from pj coffee you can find a link to that in the show notes as well i talk about it all the time but i wanted to take a, a little bit more time to talk about the awesome sly flourish discord community that we have this is available to patrons of sly flourish patrons at both the veteran and hero tier can access the sly flourish discord server we have a lot of different members in there people who come in who are all kind of focused on this idea of how we make our games great for other players we have some excellent moderators that make sure that our conversations are always staying in the right direction that everybody's behaving well we also make sure that we have lots of new events and lots of new features that we have for example one of the fun things we've had is the Dungeon 23 channel where we've been keeping track of everybody who's been doing their Dungeon 23s every day. I've been doing mine. Richard Green's been doing theirs. Others have been doing theirs. And we talk about what we've been working on and show, show it off. We have a brand new channel that's going to be starting up in 2024 called the uh, Forging Fantastic Locations channel. So this is sort of like a miniature Dungeon 23 idea where for a series of weeks, we're going to have four different kinds of locations and filling out various pieces of those locations with your ideas each day, all of us talking about it together and keeping track of it. It's really fun. We have, if you want to learn more about the other material that I'm putting on at Sly Flourish, we have an announcements channel where all of that is there, including getting a sneak preview every week of the next week's article. So if you want to get in ahead and see what I'm going to be putting out on Sly Flourish then following week, 
I think it's every Thursday you get the sneak preview. And that also helps me. You can give me feedback on the article. You can help me make sure the article is well-tuned and well well brought up for everybody else as we put it out. So that is a definite, uh, a definite valuable feature. This is also where I tend to announce Patreon features that aren't necessarily all released on the Patreon as a new message. So sometimes I have something really small where I don't think I want to send a message out to everybody about it, but I'm experimenting with it. We have the Sly Flourish Patreon Hangout where we specifically talk about things that I have put out for Patreon, but also have other conversations there as well. We have the GM's workshop. The GM's workshop is where GMs can come and say, hey, I'm working this thing on my game. I got this specific problem or this specific idea, and I'd like to get other GMs to help me sort of flesh this out. You can bring it to the GM workshop. Lots of people come in there, get their ideas around and bring up other angles. It's really, really handy. So the Sly Flourish Discord server is fantastic. It's a very active server. There are people there all of the time. It's 24 hours a day. We have people all over the world that are talking there. It's a really, really fantastic community. I couldn't be more proud of it. I couldn't be more thankful to the moderators that we have there who are volunteering their time to keep an eye on things, make sure that everybody's having a good time, making sure the conversations are all steering in fun and productive ways and coming up with these new ideas like the like the Forging Fantastic Locations 2024 thing that we're doing. It's really, really excellent. Excellent. If you want to become part of this excellent Sly Flourish Discord community, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. Link for that is in the show notes. Travel is one of those really interesting parts of our fantasy role-playing games, particularly our D&D and 5e fantasy role-playing games. What do we do when the characters are going between two locations? How do we want to run that? Uh, this goes all the way back to like the 50-year history of D&D and the different ways that people would do like hex crawls and check weather and supplies and other kinds of things. And it's actually kind of fun to add that system into the game. I've, I've added in travel systems into my home games uh, pretty often. And uh, it's it's a, it's a, it's kind of a nice, fun gameplay feature. It's more relaxed than combat, but it's still more systemic than just complete narration. And lots of different books and tools have been put out there that offer different ways of handling travel because the core 2014 books don't really have a travel system. They have like discussions of what you can do and sort of how to role play and things like that, but they don't really have a system. But other groups have created a system. I have talked about Uncharted Journeys. It was one of my favorite books of 2023. And it is an entire book built along travel systems made by Cubicle 7. And I've done a spotlight on this. So what we're, what we're going to do today is we're going to look specifically at a bunch of different travel systems that different, that different companies have put out, different groups have put out, talk, kind of compare them a little bit and describe some of their features so that we can each decide what travel system we like and which ones we want to drop into our own game. I also have some thoughts of my own about how travel systems kind of work well or how they can get too crunchy or too complicated, all sorts of things like that. But we're going to, we're going to dive into it. So we're going to start with Uncharted Journeys, and I'm starting with it because it is a giant 300-page book that's just focused on travel. That is the one thing that this book does, is talk about how you get from point A to point B and all of the things that go in between. Uh, a common feature you will find among travel systems is this concept of roles. And the roles are the characters, regardless of the fact that they have species or race and class and background and other things, they also have, what do you do when you're going on travel? What is the, what is the thing that you 
work on when you're going on travel? Are you the pathfinder? Are you the one that's looking for the path to make sure that you don't get lost in the woods? Are you the scout making sure you're not going to get flanked by evil bears? Are you the quartermaster who's making sure that your feet are staying dry, your provisions are staying dry, everybody's well hydrated, you know, making sure everybody's feeling good, right? What are those different roles? And one thing you will notice among all of these different things that I'm going to talk about is how they often change what those roles are and how they work and, and what kind of results. So the Uncharted Journeys sticks to, I think, four roles, the leader, the outrider, the quartermaster, and the sentry. And it talks about like which classes can work well and what kinds of things that they can do. And these are a little bit crunchier in like the kinds of things they can do for each of those groups. So if you look at your leader, your leader's group are to, you know, that you can make persuasion checks to make sure that other people are staying positive, that things are going well. Inward resolve, you look inward, stealing yourself for what is to come and you make your insight check to prepare yourself for the journey. Uh, song in your heart, you know, you're singing an actual song that kind of helps things go. And the results of these, one question is, so you have your role, which is what you're trying to accomplish when you're going on travel. You have your check, the thing that because of your role, you would do which skill you're going to do to accomplish it. But then you also have what happens on a success or failure within a given role. And, and that's a big question. And actually, that's one where I think that we have a little bit of leeway to decide what sort of things uh, you want to have. Uh, your outrider, your job is to find the path, blaze the trail, leave no, no stone, un, stone unturned and chart the course. These can be things like your cartography tools, intelligence, nature, wisdom, survival. Good good checks like this offer a wide range of different skills that you can use. You can see how the leader can use charisma, persuasion, or in, wisdom insight, or charisma performance. So you can see like that one definitely leads more towards charisma, but it does offer insight. Your, your, your outrider has wisdom survival, nature, and intelligence nature, and use of cartography tools. So there's something like that. Your Quartermaster has can use strength or constitution to help you carry your gear and to, to, to get everything off. Blacksmith tools or leatherwork tools to make sure that your gear is staying well. Or your use of cook's utensils or brewer supplies to make sure that the food that you're eating and drinking. You could also do like medicine and things like that. So there's lots of different roles that you can that you can have here. Your sentry is, of course, keeping an eye on things. Wisdom perception is obvious. Dexterity stealth for sneaking up or using a disguise kit to, to kind of infiltrate the groups that are going on. So those are sort of an idea of roles. This is a the, the the concept of roles is something that you will see throughout all of these different books, and you'll see that some of them, like level like the level up advanced five e trials and treasure book, has many many roles. And instead of just having like four, it has a whole bunch of roles that you can do. The one that I tend to do, which is the one that I offer in the Lazy DM's Companion, actually focuses just on three roles, pathfinding, scouting, and quartermastering. I don't really have a leadership role, but you could have a leadership role. And I don't. I think that it would actually be kind of interesting to add a leadership role. I think I'm going to do that next time and say somebody that's kind of keeping everybody on track, sharing tales, keeping a, a, a positive atmosphere along. That's a charisma-based role that goes along. And then the idea of adding strength to or, or like the, using supplies for quartermastering, I think is really interesting. So I really, really, again, I love the, I think the Uncharted Journeys is a fantastic book. I really like it. That's why it was one of my favorite books of 2023. And it's, it's given me ideas even now. This one tells you how you can actually use your different class features for things. And then you have sort of the journey rules. And one of the things that is you, you want to consider is this is where you decide 
What happens if it goes badly? What happens if you roll poorly? A common one, and one that is used in Uncharted Journeys, and I think might be overused in Uncharted Journeys, is exhaustion. Oh, we ran it and we become exhausted. The problem is that exhaustion is actually a really big negative connotation, a big negative thing. And you might, like, it, it's such a downward beat to get exhausted. One of the things that I do in my game is failure on the roll doesn't necessarily result in a mechanical effect. It can just be a story effect. And this is where you have that like fail forward sort of idea. That, you know, if you have a pathfinder who's trying to make their way along a path and they roll poorly, you can say, well, you get lost and you lose about a days of travel as you realize you went the wrong way around a big ravine. But you found this other thing that you might not have found otherwise by rolling on like an encounter table or something like that. A lot of times with the scout roll in particular, if the, the, the scouting is usually about there is an encounter, are they going to stumble into it accidentally or are they going to be able to see it ahead of time? So if the scout does a particularly good job on the roll, that means they're going to learn about an encounter before they've engaged with it. It means the characters can move around it. It means they can sneak up on them if they want to. It means they can track that kind of thing, stuff like that. If they fail on it, they might stumble in the encounter, which means they could get discovered sooner. They don't have the chance to sneak up on it, stuff like that. So that one's pretty easy to handle. Quartermastering is one where like exhaustion would be an obvious one. But again, sometimes you don't have to have a mechanical effect. You can just say, it turns out that some of your food got, got wet, that some people like they put their pack down in a muddy thing and the mud got into it. And now a bunch of the rations are ruined. And so that night you don't get to eat a particularly good meal. Does it have a mechanical effect? No, it doesn't. It doesn't need to. It's just you get to describe the story based on what happened with the role. And I think for travel, that actually works rather well because the idea of like hammering on the characters with mechanical, mechanical problems, mechanical effects, negative mechanical effects because of roles they made in travel is a particularly bad downward beat. It means that like, hey, there was just this story section and I got punished when I should have done nothing at all and I probably would have been better. So you definitely want to have where maybe instead of having a detriment for failure, you instead give a bonus for success because you were a really good quartermaster. The meal that you gave gives everybody the equivalent of like a plus one bonus on their attacks and on saving throws for the next day, right? Not a huge effect, just a little bit of a bonus, a plus one bonus that they get, right? Or they, everybody gets, a, 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 everybody's inspiration is fired up or everybody get if you're using like the, the black flag, the, the Tales of the Valiant luck system, everybody gets a luck point. I love the luck system, by the way. So this book obviously has a whole lot of more material on pre preparation. And then of course the, the journey itself and then all of the different encounters and all the different locations that you've got. So Uncharted Journeys has a really big detailed system. If you really want a big, crunchy, fun, uh, useful system, you could do far wrong from Uncharted Journeys. Uh, the other one, I've mentioned it already once today, is the Trials and Level Up Advanced 5e Trials and Treasure book. The interesting thing with Trials and Treasure is that it has a significant amount of different roles that take place. So it has a whole section about exploration, what's important. Because this is more of a GM's guide, it gets into more of what the concepts are of, of exploration. Has all the speed and everything else that you have. Are you doing like the forced march? What's fatigue? Tracking. So one thing that Level Up Advanced 5e includes is the idea of supply, that you have so many supplies, how much it, you can carry along with your character, when supplies go bad, when you can replenish supplies, what spells give you replenishment of supplies. So supplies is its own subsystem in Level Up Advanced 5e for those where they want to have something like Travel Matter more. When you have something like supplies in your system, now you have a new thing that can go well or go poorly, 
depending on some of the other aspects of your of of exploring the area weather weather events one thing I like for Level Up Advanced 5e is for each of the locations that have encounters, there's also a weather table you can roll on that um, tells you what the weather is like in that particular location. Weather is a, a good one. Um, Uncharted Journeys also has a weather table, but it's not a numbered table, which freaks me out. Like, why can't you just roll on it? I don't know why. So here's you get into their their activities, what the difficulty class is, depending on the, the territory that they're going through. And obviously, sometimes you might say like, oh, you really, you know, traveling isn't hard. But here are all of the different potential activities that they have. And there are a lot of them. Befriending animals, busk, chronicle, cook, cover, cover tracks, entertain, gather components, gossip, harvest, hunt and gather, prey, rob, scout, track. So lots and lots and lots of different things. Now, you don't necessarily have to do all of these, but you can see where all of these kind of offer a thing. And it's kind of interesting. Pray. While traveling, many choose to connect with the deities and spirits and adventure makes a religion check. Critical failure. The gods are displeased. Each party member discovers that one supply has spoiled. Failure. The gods do not listen. Success. The adventurers receive a blessing for the day spent during uh, doing this activity, gaining an expertise die on the next ability check they make in the region. Critical success. The entire party gains an expertise die on their next ability check made in this region. An expertise die is essentially like a D4 and it goes up if it stacks. So kind of a neat, you know, neat idea. So each of these events says what happens when you succeed, what happens when you fail. I would still say play this loosely, right? You don't, you don't necessarily, you don't want people to feel like they, you know, got punished for picking something that they wanted to do. So a lot of different ones. That's cool. And then we talked about, you know, we showed the random tables and how all of that, all of that. I really like this system too. I know I love all these systems. I really like the one in Level Up Advanced 5e as well. I think it's got a lot of cool ideas. They, they really tap into like what characters would be good at so that you don't really have a character who says like, oh, I don't really have anything to do here because the three big ones that you had, they don't really do anything. Everybody can get a, a, this one. It's also can be complicated though, because you have so many different ones. Hey, there's this whole list of different things that you can do. Which one of these one do you do? Well, I don't know. Which skill is it? Right. The big conversation that goes on. So you might offer them up. You could also say you as the GM, keep these in mind. And when a player says they don't really have something to do out of the main ones, you could say, well, do you want to do this instead? Would you like to pray to your deity? Perhaps you can get something from your deity. So I think it's really cool. And I like the way that this ties in to all of the, the main encounters. So I think it's a fantastic system. I think when you mix together the whole idea of supplies, when you mix in the whole idea of expertise dice, when you mix in all of the encounters and how they work, that the system in Trials and Treasure is really, really good. Trials and Treasure is just a fantastic book. I would, I, would, I would definitely recommend it. A couple of people brought up in the, in the Slide Flourish Discord server, uh, brought up some other exploration rules that have been put out in small supplements. One of them is Campfire by Abyssal Brews. I haven't taken a, a, a deep dive into this particular one yet, but it is another one that many people have said, hey, here's how you can run travel. And they really like the system. Phases of travel, preparation, weather and weather modifiers, the expedition itself, the resolution, windfalls, one of the, this is kind of neat. I like this. There's a big table of different things that can happen to you that are positive benefits. And they don't look like they're super crunchy. They look like, you know, a new friend joins the fold. The party meets a friendly NPC that takes a liking to them and either has a service to offer or to give. So those are, those are kind of neat. And hardships. What are things that you, that you run into? So nice, lightweight set of rules for 5e that, you know, that give you kind of a nice system. So that's Campfire, nice short nine page. You can find a link to that in the PDF as well. Another one that I had heard about, which I haven't spent too much time with is Weird Wastelands. 
Weird. Oh, that is a great big one. From the Web DM, Weird Wastelands is a 316-page book that is particularly about traveling in strange locations. This actually looks kind of Numenera, you know, very Numenera-like. There is a chapter in here that talks about exploration and wasteland survival while you're going through all of these weird wastelands. It has a system as well. I like this. The golden rules of player-driven sandboxes. Build trust, pay attention, ask your players, identify bonds, relationships, you know, let what you learn, infuse the setting, have information, listen, learn how, always keep something. That that is that is very cool. This has your your, your problem dehydration, encumbered, heavily encumbered, miserable, sunburned, food and water consumption, item wear and tear, resource dice. So it looks like there's a fair bit of material in here in how to handle exploration. And oh look, a whole si- a whole system on a whole system on hex exploration landmarks. So I haven't spent too much time looking at weird lacelands. Somebody reminded me that I owned it. And so I said, oh yeah, I should totally check that out. But people brought this book up when they were talking about, about exploration uh, challenges. They said that weird wastelands had some, a neat system for it. I would be remiss, of course, if I didn't mention that my own book, The Lazy DM's Companion, has a one-page travel guide that you can use to add a lightweight travel system to your game. It has a wilderness travel section that includes character roles, trail hand, scout, and quartermaster. I mentioned that those three. I call it pathfinder, trail hand. What applicable, applicable skills, nature and survival, insight, investigation, nature, perception, and survival, and medicine and survival. But again, I like that idea of adding the tool proficiencies in there as well. Your group stealth, determining the weather, what potential encounters, and notable landmarks. So a very, very simple system uh, that you can drop in here. What happens when they... Uh, fail, what happens when they succeed, what happens when they fail. Very lightweight system that you can use in your in your game. But this is definitely an area that I'm exploring myself and trying out new ideas. So, you know, that gives you a wide range of different potential products and potential systems that you can look at. Probably the two biggest ones that I would recommend myself are Uncharted Journeys, if you want a whole book on this, or Trials and Treasure, if you want a really good exploration system, plus everything else that GMs can use, a big GM toolkit. So probably Trials and Treasure would be the book I would pick up first from Level Up Advanced 5e, because I think it's just a fantastic book, but also has a really good exploration system in it as well. Every month on the Sly Flares Patreon, we have a monthly Q&A. Anybody can post an RPG-related question in the Q&A. I answer every question every Friday morning. And some of those questions I bring here to the show, other ones become catalysts for articles or videos on their own. So today we are covering questions from December 2023. From Kate says, I'm a new DM and I recently finished running Ice Spire Peak as a one-on-one game with my boyfriend, which we both enjoyed a lot. I was thinking of starting a new campaign for us to play together. Do you have any advice for crafting an adventure for one-on-one play? I do. I love one-on-one play. And I found a model for one-on-one play that I really enjoyed. In fact, the Lazy DM's Companion, which I was talking about before, has a section on one-on-one play that offers the best advice that I have for running for running one-on-one games. Then my, my number one rule is run with a sidekick. It works really well when you have a main character and a sidekick. It works really well, in my experience, for the main character to be controlled and role-played by the player and the 
player also controls the mechanics of the sidekick, but the role-playing of the sidekick is done by the GM. It basically means that the GM has a voice into the game through the sidekick. The main character is still doing the main character stuff. The sidekick is just offering things up. But it gives this nice view, and it gives a really good constant role-play opportunity to have the role-play of the player and the, uh, the, the main character and the sidekick and with the sidekick being role-played by the DM. Of course, you're going to want to be careful with combat. Most of the time, what you particularly want to be careful is the number of combatants. You want to be very careful, particularly below fourth level, of having more combatants than there are, more enemies than there are characters. If there's only two characters, two or three enemies, four is getting a little hard. The action economy is way worse. The other thing with the difficulty there is if a character is dropped to zero, you, half your party is down. <laughs> where if a character drops to zero and you have five characters, only one fifth of your party is down. So you can go badly very quickly with two characters. So you really want to be careful with the number of monsters that you're running. And even when you're running big monsters, like big legendary monsters, you want to reduce their actions down because the number of actions legendary monsters have is based on the fact that they're facing a full group. So you want to be really careful with the, the, with the damage output there. Now, a model that I found that works really well in the games I've run is the, an investigation model. I call this the Sherlock Holmes model. And the idea is you essentially have like Sherlock Holmes and Watson. The main character is Sherlock Holmes and the sidekick character is Watson. And the Watson is kind of in charge of getting jobs together for Sherlock. So you could essentially break down a one-on-one -on -one game into three phases. Phase one is when the sidekick brings a number of potential jobs to the main character. Hey, you've, there, here are these different jobs we could do. What do you think of these? And the, then the, the player will say, ooh, I like that job. We should learn more about that. And then as a GM, you say, oh, okay, that should be the one that I'm going to put more time and energy into. Phase two is the interview. And in phase two, the the main character now has an interview with whoever it is that's tied to that main job. Is it an NPC that's saying, hey, I need you to go down in these mines and locate this lost item that's down there? Or my, my daughter is missing down in the sewers. Can you go down there and find her? So whatever it is, like whatever the job is, they have that interview. And then the third the third phase is the actual adventure where the character goes to the location and goes on the adventure and does whatever they're going to do. It's a different style of game. It's very episodic, but it works really well. And the neat thing about it is two of those three phases can be done anywhere. You don't need to be at the gaming table. You can do them in 10 or 15 minutes. You can do them without any dice or any materials whatsoever. They're just conversations. So it's really, really cool and fun. If you're doing this with a, with a significant other or a partner of yours that you're close to and you go out for walks or you have dinner or whatever, you can actually play those first two phases anywhere and then you actually sit down and run phase three which is the actual adventure so that that really works out some other tips from here the biggest tip is to just try it that one-on-one -on -one games are so much fun and we don't they feel weird they feel too intimate like we kind of, kind of frightened of them you know and this is i have whole the bullshit masculinity problems about like oh getting together with a friend you know, playing a one-on-one -on -one game is not strange. Once you get into it, it's really, really fun. It's not different than other forms of D&D. &D. There's a really cool focus of the story around the character that you can get in a one-on-one -on -one game that you cannot get in a five, a one-on-five game. You, you, you can't have that level of spotlight that you can with a one-on-one -on -one game. The sidekick should never betray and never should never lead the adventure and should not betray the character. So it's very important that 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 the player is driving where things are going. The sidekick is just offering up information. And you can also offer up magic items and stuff that shore up 
the character. So if the character is a fighter and your sidekick is a rogue, maybe they get items that let them heal. You know, you, you can always sort of fill in the gaps that they don't have. If they're very focused on being able to do lots of damage to a single target but not hit a lot of groups, maybe they get things, Wanda Fireballs would be great, right? Like give them, shore them up with magic items that that build them out to be able to handle the other things that their characters typically can't can't handle and scheduling is way easier boy is it easier to schedule a one-on-one game than it is to schedule a five-on-one game so i really really love games like this i have articles on sly flourish also about all the stuff that i will link in the show notes but those are my best tips for running a one-on-one games and i feel like a lot of different campaigns big hardcover campaign books can be run one-on-one I think that you can just tune them slightly and you can take these campaign adventures and turn them into one-on-one games. I met two young women who had ran all of Tyranny of Dragons, this whole big campaign as a one-on-one adventure with one player and one GM going all the way through a huge campaign. So it definitely can be done and it's really, really fun. Michael says, we share DM duties in our group. I'm in charge of DMing the next campaign, which won't begin until Q2 2024. What would you focus on if you had three to four months with around two hours of free time a week to plan a campaign? The campaign should last six months and be two hours a week of playtime. So maybe 48. That is a ton of preparation time. I might say that's even too much preparation time. I think that there's an amount of diminishing returns that you get for your prep. When you have a lot of time like that, I don't know that there's a good way to maximize. Like if you've got, you know, that, what are we talking about? Three to four months of two hours of free time a week. So let's say it's three and it's two hours a week, two, four, six, eight, eight, 16, 24. That'd be 24 hours of prep time, roughly 24, 30 hours of prep time. That is, I don't think you're going to be that effective in hour 24 and hour 25. What I would probably do is so depending on what you're running if you're running a published adventure or a published setting diving that time into reading the book would probably be the most valuable thing and like active reading and reading with note taking right reading the book writing down things that interest you writing down things highlighting the book underlining the book which is totally cool underline your books it'll be fine you're not the archivist who have to keep a perfect copy of this book you can make your copy your own so go ahead and write in your own book that you can spend the time doing the research that you want to do for the campaign the hard part is you can't plan the campaign you can plan your seed you can think about your villains you can build out ideas but the problem is with a long campaign like that you're not going to know what direction it's going to take. And the more prep you put in, the harder it's going to be when things go off the rails or the more you're going to try to force them into a different area. So that that's where that extra time isn't always best spent on things. That's why I think like the most value you're going to get is like that first 30 minutes of prep that you're going to do for the next session you're going to run. And it's diminishing returns from there. I, I had one day, I, I, I actually experimented with this and I had an entire day with no other obligations and I was going to spend the whole day just prepping a, my D&D game. And I ended up saying like, wow, I really didn't need that much time. And I started going deeper into the campaign. Like, what are some places they're going to go? And I printed out maps and I came out with NPC cards. I basically hand built my own Beetle and Grimm box set for an adventure. In fact, I had a box set for that adventure and filled it out with other stuff and I used hardly any of it. I threw out almost all of it so it turns out it's really when you're planning that far out you're really going to be steering in a, an area that's going to be too much so the, the best i would say is research Mo- like read your monster books read your source books if there's 
if you're running a homebrew campaign, find a parallel published campaign setting and read that one and see if there's ideas from that one that gets you fired up for your own campaign. Fill your head with the kind of material you think will be useful when you're actually running the game. But yeah, that's really, it's tough. It, it sounds ideal. Like it sounds like, oh, wow, I've got so much time to prep. But the reality is you're going to have this diminishing return on what you're prepping and what, what kind of value it's going to have at your table. So it's it can be tricky. J-A-B-D says, how much is too much when describing a scene for your players? Using descriptions that rely on other senses besides sight. How do you, Mike Shea, use non-visual environmental descriptors when setting a scene for the players? What might be a good threshold for the number of things to describe that keep a description balanced and not overly poetic? Maybe one or two other things on what players see, things like smell, taste, or sound, or environmental cues that you can feel with your skin, humidity, temperature, electricity. I was listening to the Eldrick Lorecast from from December 6th, and there was a good conversation about this that made me think that I might actually add a line into my scenes or locations list when doing my lazy prep it's really hard and i i don't know that there's a good like like straight rule you know as little as you need to get the point across and not anything more but i don't know that that's really useful sometimes you got to get the idea of like looking at your players if you hopefully are playing in person and you can see their body language are you going too far two or three sentences is probably enough four or five you're leaning in towards too much more than that and you're telling a story you're not sharing in an experience the idea of the other sort of things like smell and taste and sound i know people that have notes on their dm screen that say how does it smell how does it taste how does it sound so they're keeping track of that i tend to be able to add that into my descriptions anyway like I, I don't usually need notes to tell me like how like certain sounds or certain feelings or certain smells that they can pick up. That's usually not not too much of an issue for me. At least I don't think it's too much an issue. And my players don't quit and they they keep coming to my game table. So I I you know I'm not going to say that it's not important to consider this stuff, but I think that there's we could we could obsess about this kind of thing too much. Generally speaking, the shorter the better, right? The shorter that we can make the descriptions and still make them interesting and evocative, the better. There are times where I like to like focus the lens on like one particular hair on their arm and what happens to it when a certain event occurs. I it's just kind of fun to change the aperture of our lens when we're focusing on this sort of thing, on the level of detail that we can give or, or, you know, something that happens in slow motion, you know, I'll have it where like things are happening in like super hyper, you know, matrix style bullet time. And I'll, I'll describe it that way to sort of shake things up. And I think that's sort of fun, but you got to kind of get a feeling for it. Don't beat yourself up if you do too much or too little, you try to always move things back to what the characters can do, right? Like that to me is the bigger feature. More importantly than making sure that we're using all of our descriptors to describe an environment is continually thinking about how we can get things to meaningful choices that the characters can make. What, you know, what are the things that we're offering up that offer meaningful choices? Smell and sound and feeling can do that. If you smell something one direction, you don't smell the other direction. That's information that they can help the characters make decisions. So that's where we want to think about it. What are the things that we're putting in there that are helping characters make decisions, helping players make decisions about what they're going to do in the game? So that's, that's where I would focus my, focus my attention. Jake says, what do you think about how far I should go in planning for a new campaign before I get buy-in from the players? Before I know if people are excited about that campaign, should I only get as far as one line or one paragraph pitch, or should I make them a full one-pager so they have more information? It, it depends on how hard your group is, and 
how often that they've said, no, I, I would really rather not play in that campaign. I have a player friend of mine who is a GM who had put together big PowerPoint presentations that she would pitch to her players on the things that she wanted to do. I guarantee by the time she was done with her PowerPoint presentation, they were on board because the energy level that a GM brings to things is often much higher than the energy level that the players bring to things. So you'd have to be way off the mark for your players not to be interested in a particular campaign. So how far you want to get far enough that they can, that you've able to differentiate the campaign with your players. What makes this one different? What is exciting about this one? What's the hook? And it doesn't have to be a super great hook. It could just be enough to go, Oh, what kind of adventure is this going to be? What are we doing there? What kind of characters can we have there? You know, what are the things that we want? So you want to, you want to have that pitch. And I think having those secrets would not be bad, but I think by the time you've put together a one pager, I would be surprised if they would say, no, I don't want to play that. You would have to be pretty far off from what you're, from understanding what your players are looking for, for them to read it and say they don't want to. Now you might have a player who's particularly picky, but you could also say, well, I'm probably going to run this. Are you going to be cool with that? Right. They get the choice because they're a player. I mean, not, not that like they're not nothing. They're spending their time at the game too, but you're putting a lot of effort into it. And if the other players are on board, then everybody's on board. So I've not had anybody say I've, I've definitely had campaigns where I like thought about it and we all kind of, eh, but you know, it's sort of like everybody gets a vote, but we get 50%, we get 51% of the vote. So I've, I've not had it where by the time I put together a one pager, the players were not invested. But I think you want to think about what kind of characters are going to be there. What are they going to do? Folk, you know, what's, what is it that they're going to try to accomplish? And what kind of game is it going to be for them from a gameplay standpoint? I think those are things you would want to have ready by the time you start to talk to your players about what you're going to do. Caesar B says, I've been playing with the same group for almost 30 years now and we get along really well. Besides me, there's one other friend that runs a game and we both play on each other's table and it's all good. Since I read your books, I really like the way of your planning games with the lazy DM steps and I truly love that I truly love, but that wasn't the only thing that I, that I implemented here. I liked your suggestion of asking feedback about the game for the players with an open heart and still encouraging them to do it frequently. In that spirit, I was hoping to be able to give some friendly feedback, some feedback to my friend's game. I enjoy playing at his table. There are just some things I feel are super railroaded and that we have no agency on what's coming next. That is the only thing I wanted to tell him, but I'm afraid that he may not be open to receive criticism and I don't want to make him feel bad or anything. Any idea on how to hint that hint that in a way that won't hurt any feelings. That is a really tough one. If a, if a GM is not asking for feedback and you give them feedback, particularly negative feedback, like positive, nobody, Hey, I'm going to just tell you, I've really enjoyed sitting at this team, this game with you. And I've really, it's been really fun. And I love the character arc that's going on. No GM is going to be upset about getting feedback like that. But when you say something like, Hey, recently I felt like our characters don't have a lot of agency in what we do. And you're just bringing it up to them. You want to be careful about it. And one question you want to have, if they're not asking for feedback, and you're giving it, you're already going to put them on the defensive just at the very start, regardless of what you say. There are probably a few ways that you could do it, but you want to be triply careful with it because they didn't ask. And even if they did, they might not really be asking. They might be saying like, hey, how do we all feel about the game? And you're like, I think we're getting railroaded. And they're like, what? Right? Like you could put them on the defensive side right at the beginning. So I think that you, you want to be careful with how you provide feedback. 
and there's, you know, a lot of ways to do this. One is that it, don't state it like it is the way the game is. Describe it as how you feel about it. Hey, sometimes I feel like I'm not able to make as many choices with my character, or I built a character a certain way and I don't feel like I'm at that effective in this kind of game. Or I would, you know, if you, you know, I would really love to see more options where you have X, Y, and Z. You know, I think you want to be open to that. I would definitely give it one-on-one. I would try to do it in person if you can. If you can't do it in person, I would do it in like video chat. And if you can't do that, then audio chat. Text should be last, right? Don't offer it in text to be last unless, you know, try to do it in person if you can. And, but be careful with it because this is someone putting themselves out there creatively and you can hurt them, right? We can all be hurt by this kind of thing. So you really, it's good that you, you already know or you wouldn't be asking the question, that you want to be careful with how you provide feedback to people, particularly even when they ask for it, but particularly when they don't ask for it. And really, really be gentle with it. Talk about the situation, not them. Talk about like, you know, be, be gentle. Recognize that you might have ways that you're not seeing and that other people might not feel the same way. You know, definitely want to be careful with how you're, how you're critiquing stuff like that. That's a very, it's a very good question and it's good that you are, that you are asking that question. Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in role-playing games. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did and you want to see more stuff like this, the best way to do so is to subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. It is absolutely free to sign up. You get a free adventure generator for signing up and you get a RPG-related newsletter sent to your inbox every week that includes links to all of the other things that I do and other tips and all kinds of great stuff every week. You can also support me directly on Patreon. You get access to the dedicated Discord Discord server. You get access to the City of Arches sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a bunch of exclusive adventures, tons of stuff you get for being a patron of Sly Flourish. And you can go to the Sly Flourish bookstore, picking up Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy DM's Companion, the Lazy DM's Workbook, Forge of Foes, and all of the fantastic adventure books, plus mugs, calendars, t-shirts, all kinds of great stuff that you can get on the Sly Flourish bookstore. Please check it out. Help me support the show. Thank you so much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.